Behavior Groups, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt. And I am Tim. We like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring those insights to you. Oh, and we usually mix in a bit of music with this too. So while we have always mixed music with behavioral science, we have not interviewed an actual full-time musician on the show until today. I would say she's just a bit more than just a musician. In fact, I might call her a polymath, uh, a renaissance woman, a pansophic human being, a groundbreaking, rule-bending, multi-talented individual who can't be tied down to conventional labels or characterizations. So there. Wow. All right. So you obviously picked up on her ability to use language in ways that not many of our guests could match. And I would have to agree. There is no way, no way that I would ever, ever describe her as just a singer. So, of course, we're talking about our guest on this episode, and that's Dessa. Dessa is a singer, rapper, writer, speaker, science and philosophy connoisseur, podcast host, and ice cream flavor inventor. <laughs> you know that. Yeah, I know you know this, Kurt, but I've got to tell you that Dessa's existential crunch ice cream. It, it's it's made up of creme fraiche brown sugar ice cream with Jameson Iris whiskey, Disarono Amaretto liqueur, and a cashew and praline pecan brittle crunch. Oh man, that is ice cream that packs a punch, baby. Yeah, well, you gotta love ice cream, right? So so Dessa has made a career of bucking genres and defying expectations. Her resume as a musician includes being part of the Doomtree Collective, as well as a lot of solo artist work, performances at Lollapalooza and Glatzenberry, co-compositions for 100 voice choirs, performances with the Minnesota Orchestra, and top 200 entries on the Billboard charts. She also contributed to the number one album, The Hamilton Mixtape. And as a writer, she's been published by the New York Times and National Geographic Traveler, and she's published a memoir in essays called My Own Devices, fantastic, fantastic read, and has uh, two additional literary collections that she's published. Yeah. And now she's the host of a new podcast that explores why we do the things we do called Deeply Human. Hmm, that, that tagline sounds awful familiar, <laughs> Tim. Where, where might have I heard that before? Why we do the thing? Ah, hmm, I don't know. I can't. It's just not, not, not quite connecting there. <laughs> well, her new adventure absolutely relates to the work that we are doing on this podcast, and that is exploring why we do what we do with a behavioral science lens, albeit she does have the backing of the BBC and American public media, so maybe not quite the same. That's kind of nice to have the backing of the BBC (laughs) and American public media, right? All right. So beyond just being fans of her music and talking about her new podcast, We wanted to talk to Dessa because we thought we could explore the intersection of music and emotion. We explored that intersection along with some of the experiments Dessa did with her own brain to try to scientifically move beyond a heartbreak that she had. Hmm. That sounds like such a downer, but I got to tell you, the conversation was not. It was fun and fascinating. And so right now, we would like to invite you to sit back with a 
big, deep glass of humanness and enjoy our conversation with Dessa. Dessa, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thanks for having me. We are very, very excited to have you. And we're going to start with a speed round. So let's let's just start. You know, you've spent a lot of time on the road. Uh, so would you prefer to travel on your free time, given a world where we can actually travel in our free time, uh, on a fixed itinerary or no itinerary at all? No itinerary, hands down. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Love that. All right, Dessa. Would, do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee. That was fast. Good. <laughs> wow. <laughs> there seems a, no delay there, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you think we need a word for the deep sense of personal loss that comes with the approaching end of a TV series that you've been binge watching? I think it's called parasocial anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> parasocial breakup. There you go. Breakup? Is that what it yeah. is? Okay. Yeah. There's a, it's a parasocial relationship that you have with those characters that aren't real. <laughs> and so it's a breakup when that ends. But yeah, that's, uh, I know you tweeted about that a little while ago. So. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That was good. That was good. Thank All you. right, Dessa. Would you rather host a podcast about music or a podcast about how science can help explain the human condition? <laughs> I feel like this is an alley-oop. Like the, the, <laughs> the experimenters are in fact my confederates on this one. Uh, <laughs> I love my career as a musician, but I really like talking about science. <laughs> and you are going to do that. You have a brand new podcast coming out. Uh, Deeply Human, which has the tagline, Why We Do the Things We Do. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about that podcast and, and what it is? Yeah, um, it's driven essentially by the kind of the motor of curiosity. And in it, in every episode, I talk to a few researchers and experts in their field, um, really across disciplines, to try to explain some facet of human behavior. And then I I do my best to communicate with those experts in a way that like kind of nudges them off the standard interview script if I can. So I do a lot of like social media lurking to figure out like, have they got kids? You know, like what are these people like as people, you know? And I think, um, I think culturally we have sort of a, like a regrettable partition between science and the rest of the world. But really science is a daily practice. You know, I'm looking right now, let's see, at, um, at three yellow roses on my table that are all um, dead. And I don't know why, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So like next time I'll try to put them in a bigger vase and see if that helps or put them closer to the window. Like that's science, that's using observed data, right? To do a series of tests to try to achieve better results. And I think, I think in our society, we imagine that that science is like relegated to these hermetically sealed rooms where dudes in white coats run around with Bunsen burners and beakers. And so anything I can do to relax that partition I'm interested in. Cause I think, um, I think that better understanding ourselves can help us make better choices. And it's just a more interesting way to live. I, I agree with that 100%. And Alan Alda is actually doing a similar, he has a podcast that is trying to take uh, scientific and bring it into scientific language and bring it into the common vernacular and get scientists to talk to regular people. And it's kind of what we're doing with, with this podcast is we're trying to take those elements around behavioral science and that human condition aspect and 
let people understand how they can apply that into their lives every single day. So, so I know you've interviewed Dr. Barry Schwartz and Dr. Helen Fisher on your first episode, but who else are you getting to talk to? Oh man, it's been um, it's been a really really wide spectrum of researchers. It's been fun. So people from from all ar- around the world um, who study what it's like to be conscious and have a sense of self, uh, who study why we get deja vu and what that mm. might mean. Yeah, like what does that mean about how our memory works, if anything, you know? And and do we all experience deja vu the same way? Uh, spoiler alert, no, we do not. <laughs> just had like an insane conversation with this woman who, I mean, just my jaw was was in my own palm for the majority of the conversation. Like she's having these paralyzingly intense bouts of deja vu. And she just imagines that's what it's like to feel alive, that everybody has that. Because, <laughs> you know, it's like we don't very often have the occasion to like um, rigorously compare subjective experiences it's like that old kind of stoner question like what if red looks different to you than red looks different from like that's a great question (laughs) you know more dominoes yeah it is a great question tim and i actually tim uh a long time ago helped me discover that i have a a condition called aphantasia which is that i have a, a blind mind's eye so when most people close their eyes they can picture things in their head when I close my eyes, it's black. I just kind of get, you know, fragments of things. And and I, d- I thought that's how everybody was. And it wasn't until we had some conversation about it. So it is those weird little things that if you pay attention and you notice, those are fun. Those are Wait really a minute. interesting aspects. <laughs> Wait a minute. When you when other people close their eyes, it's not black. Yeah. When it, it, So if you think about an apple, right? If I asked you to close your eyes and think about an apple, what do you see? I mean, technically, I see blackness, but like appleness comes to mind. I know, yeah. you know, I, I know, I know the, I know the shape of it, but I don't see the shape of it. Yeah, so it's interesting. You should go out. There's a, there's some tests online that you can go out and see if you have aphantasia. It's about three percent, three to four percent of the population is what they 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 say it is, and so. Uh, there's some tests around it and very different things. Actually, one of the the guests that we're hoping to have is is one of the leading experts on this. So cool. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we digress, which is what we do. This that's, is what we that's, do. that's exactly what we do. Yeah. So, I, 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 Dessa, I'm curious about uh, like the bridge into podcasting. We got a preview. I, just spoiler alert for listeners: we did get a preview of what your first episode's like, and it was so cool because it was so you. Like there was nothing about that, what we heard that wasn't you. And so this high degree of authenticity comes through. It was, it was super cool. Was, were you intentional about that? Was it like, okay, I really like, you know, I want to make sure that I stay really true to me or stay true to this sort of persona or self image. How how did you go about that? Uh, Well, I mean, first, thanks. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think, I think a lot of us, to some degree, when we, um, when you do your hair in the morning, you know, or you, you check yourself out in the mirror, I guess, after you get dressed, or if you're, if you're someone who, who wears makeup, you know, as you, as you put blush, let's say on your cheeks, I think we have a practiced mirror face. (laughs) Um, Uh that is our most attractive sort of like posture of our features and we know it. And, and I think similarly, like when we're on, when we're maybe recording our own voicemail message. Hi, it's Dessa. I'm not here. Like you hear that total, like there's a little bit of, 
a BS, yeah, right? Yeah. It's like, it's a performative thing. And I mean, I think naturally just as people, we have, you know, that impulse to put our, to, I don't know, to put our polished self forward. Um, but I think as an artist, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the effort that I've spent learning how to use language is to try to figure out when, how to drop the veils when possible. You know, I, I, I feel really connected to people on the occasion that they're willing to present themselves kind of unfiltered, you know, whether that's because you, you sat next to somebody on a plane, right? So you're never going to see them again, you know, so you can mm-hmm. afford to be candid because <laughs> there, there's no social price to pay. Um, so yeah, I knew that when I was doing the podcast that trying to find a way to connect this fascinating research to like lived experience and then to try to present that lived experience with the skills that I had learned as a writer of creative nonfiction. So to try to find a sweet spot between, um, yeah, between science and, and kind of a literary art, if I could. Mm-hmm. Well, you have done a very fantastic job with that, you, bringing your mother in on the first episode as well, kind of bringing some of that realistic, realistic life kind of, hey, you want to you want to manage my Tinder for me and everything else. So that was that was really really good. Um, you talk about this mix between bringing this literary aspect that you've honed for years and trying to you know what did you say um, uh, get rid of the veil. Um, and you do that I think a lot with your lyrics as well. And one of the things that we wanted to talk to you about is this uh, kind of convo uh, this. Uh, uh, this mix between emotions and music and how they get intertwined. And, you know, for your perspective, do you think, you know, how do you think music and emotions get intertwined? Yeah. I mean, for, I, I think it is one of those questions that you could, um, that you could chase down for a lifetime and, <laughs> and researchers have, <laughs> so I shouldn't say could, that people have, in fact, I mean, my, my dad was a classical musician when I was a girl. Uh, he played classical guitar, and before I was born, he was he played the lute. Um, so yeah, like a real, I don't know, like an artist's artist, if that makes sense. You know, it's like you don't go into Elizabethan lute music for the money, and um, <laughs> and the kind of um, I don't know, like he's, he's an old world scholar in a lot of ways, uh, driven by passion, very autodidactic, you know, but he listening to him play this unamplified instrument, you know, for these kind of many hours of as close as, I don't know, maybe as close as I got to like a, a, or as he got at that time to like a sacred feeling. Um, Mm. Even him, you know, who took the thing so seriously and, and, and his instrument was so precious. And when you open the case, um, it's a really, really distinct smell coming off the wood and the, the kind of soft fabrics um, that protected it. Even in like subsequent conversations with him about why music is so affecting, you know, why it, um, why it cleaves us open so wide. He said that he was ready to, um, to concede that perhaps it really was just in his term, um, mental masturbation, that there was something (laughs) about the way that the human brain was sensitive to patterns, you know, that, that responded essentially to those patterns in acoustic form. Um, so I do think that there's a school of thought that need be seriously considered, which is like, Hey, 
some parts of our um, of our behavior and our and our bodily traits too might develop as a byproduct of other stuff. So like, for example, to be sensitive enough to the complicated syntactical and grammatical patterns that it takes to do language, you're accidentally hella sensitive <laughs> to these other <laughs> patterns too. We're just pattern junkies, you know? Um, I, I do think that that's one way, uh, that, that's one answer to be considered. And, and on the other hand too, you know, we've got these ideas about what it takes to synchronize human behavior and how, how a sensitivity to music might have, if we were to look at it from kind of an evolutionary perspective again, maybe that sensitivity to music helps us synchronize our work, helps us synchronize our wars, uh, helps us synchronize our movements. And then, of course, the lullaby stuff. Is it a self-soothing thing, you know? Is it, does it have to do in some ways with, like, our preference against the wire monkey? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and when you talk about synchronizing, just to clarify, is that is that a synchronicity with with uh, or synchronous experience with other people or just within ourselves? Mm, uh, the way that I was using it in that sentence was with other people as a social tool. But yeah, but you might well be referencing stuff that I don't know anything about. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I. I think music making is a self-soothing tool. I can imagine that as far as, yeah, synchronizing. You know, I was thinking about, um, you know, in, in, in a modern context, I guess, like, what is the drummer boy? Why on earth would you put a little kid with a drum in a war? Because it's helpful. <laughs> uh, not only to rouse passions, um, but it might be helpful to synchronize footfalls. Um, and when we're doing, um, like, I've seen some interesting songs that are used for like human jackhammering. So like right now we have an, or where I live anyway, when there's jackhammering to be done and you might be able to hear some outside my window at the moment for that, I apologize. But <laughs> but we have like a mechanical thing that goes, gah, 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 right? Well, in some places where, um, where you're using human power for that, you need everybody to jump at the same time on a, on essentially like a, a pogo stick without a spring that you're all jumping on to drive it into the ground. You know, and so there are some good songs that you can do at speed to help everybody jump at the right time. Mm. That kind of stuff. The labor, labor sinking. Mm -hmm. Well, and I know, Tim, you've talked about music being one of the oldest forms of communal aspect, right? The beat, the rhythms that you've done some, some research into that. And it sounds very similar to what you're talking about there, Dessa, that this is a, a way of synchronizing not just the actions of those people trying to, you know, jackhammer their manual jackhammer into the ground, but also just how we, oh, there's your background noise in New York, right? hundred um, percent. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that's, it's a podcast. That's what this it's is real. all about. It's all it's good. Real. Yeah. But there's this aspect of the synchronization with, with the others around you that just draws you together. Um, and I think it's a really interesting concept that music has this emotional bonding capability. And I know you've talked about the, the kind of the, the feeling you get when you're in concert and granted mm -hmm. you haven't probably been able to play live in a while, but do you ever feel that connectivity with your a, with your bandmates, if you're playing with Doomtree or just the other, you know, like Abby or anybody else that you're playing with on a, on a normal basis. And then do you feel that with the audience as well? Is there some sort of sense of getting in a groove that you feel? To be honest, I sort of consider that the, the, the job. <laughs> 
it's like how, at least for live performance, right? Right. Um, how to get everybody in this room feeling the same way. Um, that's sort of what live performance is. And if you see, you know, kind of attention wander, um, well, you're an attention shepherd. Like, it's your job to, to try to bring it back, you know, and you develop skills that, um, that make the proposition of attending to what is happening on stage more attractive than the proposition of attending to the recent text message. That's your job, is to make sure that you've got more on your side of the scale. Yeah. So, so I'd like to jump back to just the development of the, of the podcast, because you talked about curiosity. You, you mentioned almost casually, well, you were just curious. Uh, it's it's one thing to just be curious. It's another thing to say, well, I'm going to start a podcast about this. I think that there's a, another level of, of curiousness. So can, could you talk a little bit about sort of the catalyst for that curiosity? And at what level did you get to a point where it was like, oh, I got to do something about mm. this? Yeah. I mean, in some way, I feel like... Um, you know, I, I've been pretty curious, naturally, I think, um, since since I was a little girl. You know, the, the questions, like, why, why, why? Very very much my vibe. Um, the constant whys, as, you know, as a kid to my, to my parents. So, you know, I, I didn't start this podcast from whole cloth. I was lucky enough to receive an email from a colleague that said, hey, I know that there is this joint project between the BBC and American public media, and they might be looking for a host who's American. Um, would you have any interest essentially in having your hat tossed into the ring? And the answer was like, Oh my God, yes, yes I would have, <laughs> you know, all, both hands all the way up. Um, you know, I, I was, I was thrilled by the opportunity to, to essentially interview for it, you know? So on my next tour through London at a small club, um, I got to meet with, <laughs> you know, one of the top brass at the BBC who was kind enough to like come to my tiny green room backstage and have a conversation amidst all these open suitcases and <laughs> before soundcheck. Um, and yeah, and, and I, you know, I got the gig and was, was thrilled. So over the past year and year and a half, maybe two years, um, I've spent a lot of time going back and forth between London and, and the U.S. to work with that production team. They've got great researchers, great producers, and also just learn how this stuff is done, you know. Um, and I've, one of the favorite things for me, you know, one of the favorite parts of the gig is the opportunity to to be a student in that way again. I mean, that sounds like cheesy because you can be a student at all times, but like to have, um, to have an opportunity professionally to take my curiosity seriously. Cause I think a lot of times we really do write off curiosity as like an after hours gig. Whereas mm. I think it should be way more like we've had conversations culturally about like, Hey, play is important. Rest is important. You know, we're kind of like resurrecting these, um, these human activities from like the, the margins I think of our free time to understand their importance to, to just like health of a human organism. And I kind of think like, I'd love to see curiosity uh, receive a similar treatment. I, it's so true that you can always be that learner, but there is an aspect that comes with a podcast that you get to actually talk to some oh, yeah. of the leading researchers in the world that you, if you call them up randomly out of the blue, they're not going to necessarily talk to you, but you get to 
have that conversation with them. So it's it, Tim and I, it's, it's one of the things that we love about this. And we love the, the concept of just being able to take those conversations that we have then and share them with a larger audience. So hopefully that we can invite them into that conversation. So learning does become more of this, hey, not just a thing that happens on the weekends or in the evenings on the, on the peripheral of life, but more integrated into to what we're doing. So, so love that concept that you're doing there. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You're right. Like, I, 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 maybe I buried the lead. They talk back is the most exciting <laughs> part. Like, they are willing to talk to me, you know, and, and I can say like, hey, I'm from the, you know, I'm from the BBC. I am, we're talking to, talk to me. And, um, and then, yeah, like, you know, being able to read these incredible books, try to come up with some really rad questions. Um, and, and yeah, speak to, to people whose minds are working on issues that I find absolutely fascinating. And, and maybe just a piggyback on your point, like this idea that, you know, not only is like learning not relegated to the weekends, but when, when learning is, is like driven by natural curiosity, no matter what that is, you know, if you're really into dog breeds, like that's not my thing, but if you're really into dog breeds and how, what is a purebred or, or if you're really into like, um, I don't know, like black holes or, you know, kids when they're really into dinosaurs, um, the, that's not vegetables then that's what that's the fun part you know and i think i think a lot of times uh learning still i don't know is vegetables when we're adults so i want to get back into some of the the musical components that that you do and bringing in some of the elements of how you write in your music and again tying that back to the emotional aspect of it and so You've talked about how many of your songs are sad love songs, and you even describe that as a romantic devastation as kind of your maybe a musical genre that, that you might might have. And in your TED Talk, you talked about how actually most of those sad songs were about one guy. Um, and, and uh, you know, for lack of a better term, there's probably some emotional baggage that you were trying to, sure. to work through. Was Was writing about that was that a form of self-therapy for you or was it just the rumination that you couldn't get it out of your mind and, and it was the only thing that was coming into your head when you were thinking about those or did it help you in some way? Yeah. I mean, it's tough to tell in some ways because you can't run the same life twice, you know, so there is no control life for me to compare stuff to. Like, what if I hadn't written all those songs? I will say that it didn't feel like, um, it didn't feel like it was driven by like a therapeutic impulse. Um, but I've had friends check me on that, to be honest too. And like, or ask me to at least reconsider it. But I, <laughs> I, I will say that. And so, so in some ways, in some ways you might hear, um, I don't know, like a superciliousness even, but I just, I, I take like art writing real differently than journal writing. If that makes sense. It's like, I have a journal, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't need, I, I, it would feel strange for me to subject strangers to my journal because, because what I would ask of a journal isn't necessarily like, um, I don't know. It's just, it's self-interested, right? Whereas I, when I'm making art, um, my, my only objective is not to, is not to purge myself or make myself feel better. It's to try to forge connections. So it's like in the same way that if I were, if I were having the conversation with you guys, right, and um, I don't know, and I'm talking on and on about, like, baby pictures or something, like, 
you don't know this person. Do you know what I mean? And we, we've all probably been in conversations where people are like, perhaps uh, demonstrating an inadequate uh, regard for our attention. <laughs> um, you know, I, I try to be communicative with art, which means that I'm being mindful, I hope, of the listener's time and attention, and I want to make sure that I'm earning and rewarding it. Um, w- yeah. So with that, are you are you trying to get an emotional response from from the music? I mean, and from the lyrics that you're bringing, is it is that the intent, or because a lot of your a lot of your music is narrative, right? You're telling kind of pretty intense stories as they're going through, and we you know narr- narratives are emotional. That's how we. That's how we learned in the past. That's how we evolved in this storytelling way of passing on culture and different pieces. But it was also a way to evoke emotion. And is that purposeful on your part? Or is it just kind of how you've always done it? And it's just, it's worked. Um, gosh, maybe both. I mean, yes, I, I do. Okay. I do hope that my music would elicit strong emotional responses. But I'm careful to not to try to be... Um, unduly prescriptive so <laughs> because i because i work almost entirely in nonfiction, at least when i'm writing true stories i'll say that so maybe i'll separate the two when i'm writing true songs right i feel like my job is to communicate it as well as i can um to paint the pictures to come up with some really memorable and, and unique you know metaphors right if i can to paste the thing well to make sure that when i use a pronoun you know it's what it's referring to which is surprisingly easy to not do like it's it, a lot of times like if you actually ask in a song like to what does the word he they're like oh i thought that was the dog like no dude that's the husband like oh i see why the last thing i mentioned was the dog like um to, to make sure that the language you know does its work but and then to try to write some, of course, like rad harmonies and deliver it cool. But I also am mindful of the fact that, in my experience, the way that true stories work, right? Very often they'll um, they'll resonate in the overlap of the Venn diagram between two mm-hmm. lives, right? So it's like, you know, if you're what what struck me when I was a young girl reading the Diary of Anne Frank, right? Probably had to do with our shared youth. That's different, right? If if I if if I were um, a Jewish man reading uh, Anne Frank in uh, in 1975, right? Like their their shared identity might resonate most, um, and so I know that the parts of the true stories that I write, if they do their work and resonate in in the hearts of strangers, right? I don't get to pick exactly what chamber buzzes. Um, but I trust that the truth does its own work. Like a really good true story well told um, with, with, you know, the appropriate amount of conflict and drama and sincerity and vulnerability, right? Like, the, I, I, I think it's going to work differently for different people, yeah. Well, you talk about the, uh, when you're, you've got a journal, you have that off to the side. You've got songs for, for performance and for recording and for a whole variety of other reasons. You're not going to share the baby pictures, so to speak, with necessarily uh, with, with someone that you don't know. But that happens to you, you know, at live shows, right? They, they have, people are coming up and wanting to share their, metaphorically speaking, their baby pictures with you. They'll start because they'll sort of point to the area of overlap in our lives. They'll say... 
hey, I had a really, really rough time getting over someone and I've been keeping it secret for a long time because I was embarrassed. Okay, well, they know what our overlap is. I didn't know, but they did because they listened to the song. So now we already are operating in this kind of, you know, like shared garden or whatever. And Or sometimes they'll say, um, you know, I, I'm Puerto Rican and I grew up in the Midwest and <laughs> I don't know what to make of it and I don't feel Puerto Rican enough and I don't... Oh, okay, I totally feel you, man. I know what you're talking about. Um, so... They've, they've done the work of identifying what our shared um, experiences might be a lot of the time. Um, so, yeah, in some ways, like, they know better what we have in common because they've been able to kind of, you know, flip, flip through the record. So, Yeah, and I think building a relationship is built upon those shared connections. And so it, if they can shortcut that by taking some information from the work that you've put out, it it only just makes that connection happen a little bit sooner and maybe a little bit more deep. And it's a positive thing, I think. I think so. I want to get back to uh, another piece of, of your work. And, and you wrote about this in uh, your in your essays, uh, Call Off Your Ghost, which describes a little experiment that you did on yourself. And again, it, it was based on some insights from Dr. Helen Fisher. And I'd love to hear about your, you know, now having had that chance to talk to her, I wonder how that is. Um, but you used an EEG and an fMRI and some uh, of your fans helped out. Can you tell a little bit for our listeners about what that story is? Yeah. So, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I'd had this, um, I'd had, I'd had <clears throat> just a really like protracted um, like romantic relationship. And then like this sort of gray area between like dating and not dating. And, um, and then just feeling heartbroken about it all. And it just seemed to be lasting a lot longer than it should. I mean, I, you know, nobody, nobody, I don't think who's an adult hasn't had their heart really broken. Um, but it was just like staying broken for a really, Mm. really long time. And then all of a sudden it was just like, yo, um, this is like a slice of my, this is not insignificant anymore. This is like now a part of my time on earth. I've spent heartbroken over the same person. This feels like a problem and um, it doesn't feel healthy. And I don't like the fact that because I'm ruminating on it, like maybe it's limiting my art, which I take. So like, as soon as it was touching the art, so I was like, Oh my God. Um, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, so I was like, okay, well, what if I what if I undertook this as an artistic project and a science project, essentially? Like, if I were to zoom out and say, well, how does a woman fall out of love if she's determined to? Like, is there anything you can do? I think a lot of our approaches right now are sort of passive. You know, you you do your best to spend the time in a healthy way waiting for yourself to heal, right? You hang out with other friends, you get sleep, you invest yourself in your work, you whatever, you know, meditate, you do hobbies. Okay, well, it wasn't it wasn't gone yet, and I was doing as good as I can on that stuff. So, I I decided to research um, about what what is happening to a body and a mind when it's in love, and all sorts of things are happening to a body and a mind when it's in love. You know, there's going to be signatures in your hormones and in your pulse rate potentially. You know, when you're when you're around the person who excites you, but also, um, you know, I I, w- I wanted to know like what what's the neuroscience that don't we know about love? I mean, we know that that some substances, some chemicals, essentially like um, oxytocin, are are involved. Maybe vasopressin as well. Um, but in in studying, um, I 
I kind of stumbled in my research upon this TED Talk by, by Dr. Helen Fisher, who had really studied the neuroscience of love. You know, so she's talking about which like neuro, neuroanatomical structures are involved. Um, some at the front of your head, uh, anterior cingulate, and the caudate, and the VTA, the ventral tegmental area, and and I was fascinated by that idea. You know, it just hadn't really occurred to me that there might be um, particular structures that were really associated with our subjective feeling of love, you know? Mm -hmm. And so after learning about her work, I thought, okay, well, if that's how the brain behaves when it's in love, like, is there any way to change that brain's behavior, to, you know, to fall out of love? Um, and so I started, I started just doing some, some research of my own into neural feedback, which is, uh, as you said, it's, a, it's an approach that is designed um, to use EEG or QEEG technology. So if you imagine like people with a lot of um, little sensors like stuck on their scalp, like in the movies, you know, and then wires coming <laughs> from those sensors, they don't go into your brain. They're just measuring the electricity through your, through your skull and scalp essentially to figure out which parts of your brain are most active in any given moment. Um, and neurofeedback is sometimes used as an intervention for people who um, might have like a, a behavioral issue that they're trying to ameliorate um, that might be associated with like autism. Um, I think it's also used with, um, or it's, it is associated also with like epilepsy. Um, so I'd wondered like if here's this technique, you know, that's being used as a potential intervention to try to change brain behavior, um, could it be used to focus on the parts of the brain that are associated with romantic attachment. Now, what I wasn't doing is like eternal sunshine of a spotless mind. I wasn't like, hey, <laughs> let's do a lobotomy. And I wasn't like, hey, can we wipe out all memory of this dude? In some ways, it's just like, okay, yes. Like if you want to be stronger, you know, or more flexible, you go to the gym and you stretch. Does that last forever? No, you have to stay going to the gym and stretching, you know? So like... <laughs> Are there any mental exercises or mental interventions that I could undertake? Um, yeah, that might help me get over this dude. And so I just want really quickly want to say um, a shout out to the to the two primary um, researchers and scientists who I worked with. So the first one was Penny Jean Gracefire. So she was the person who worked um, on the neurofeedback with me. And then Dr. Cheryl Ullman at the University of Minnesota. She did the fMRI stuff. So that's when you... You know, for, for people who can't quite picture it, it's like that um, that sort of tube that you'd be like gurneyed into, that you'd be wheeled into, where you, then you can see like a, a picture of your brain and you can see all the swirling colors superimposed on it that indicate which parts of your brain are active at any given moment. Yeah. And so you had these two people and you were able to, to go through and do an fMRI to begin with. And mm -hmm. then you go and did some of your training around that, that brain flexibility as you uh, you know, going to the gym to work your brain out on it, and then got back in the fMRI. And were you able? Were, were you able to to maybe, you know, help in that mm. that romantic, uh, you know, winterland that you were stuck in? Yeah, I mean, I want to be careful to be like, hey, I'm a sample size of one. Do you know what I mean? So if you flip okay. a coin, what, we we understand this. This is your story. This is your narrative. It I know, a, but I just yeah. I want to communicate it for your listeners too that like, you know, if you <laughs> flip a coin and it lands heads and then you stop flipping that coin, you can't be like, "Oh, it's a heads coin." You know, it's like, yeah, exactly. The 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 number of trials is important. But for me, um 
you know, I, yeah, we did see difference in short. Like I went in to take a before picture of my brain while thinking about this guy. Right. And we tried to do like a single blind study so that I was looking at this guy that I was really into. And then another dude who just sort of looked like that guy, but who, who I wasn't into, you know, so I was, <laughs> I was borrowing from the protocol of Dr. Helen Fisher. Um, she had done a, you know, that was the protocol that she had used when she was trying to figure out how our brains behave when we think about our beloved. Um, so we measured the way that my brain responded to like cute guys um, who looked similar, but only one of whom, you know, I was actually in love with. We recorded that data. The data was very strong. So when I was looking at the at the dude I liked, uh, the, the the researcher could guess right away who was who. <laughs> um, yeah. So they were like, I'm pretty sure it's you know dude A uh, is the dude that you're into. And we used several photos of each of them to make sure it wasn't a response to a photo. Wow. And, um, and then I went away for several weeks, and I did um, like I think nine sessions with, of neurofeedback. And I went back into the fMRI, right, to revisit those pictures and to see if my brain was still um, responding in those areas in such a strong and selective way for this dude. And the response was, in my brain, um, markedly, markedly uh, muted. You know, it did not jump in the same, like, puppy-ish way um, (laughs) that it had in the first trials. Did I feel better? I... Yeah, a little was my honest response. I did a little. I mean, I still, I still had all the same memories. And in some ways, yep. the way I've described it in the TED Talk was like, I had all the same feelings, which, you know, after a long and hard relationship are myriad, you know, like yeah. love, tenderness, jealousy, um, anger, uh, you know, charity, like all those feelings. But like the good ones had risen to the surface and I just wasn't mm. so... I was just wasn't so fixated, I guess. I wasn't so compelled in the same way. Yeah. yeah. You know, sometimes we ask our, our guests in the speed round, would you prefer to have dinner with a musician or an athlete? Most of them say musician, but I got to say, you are the poster child for why the answer should always be musician. <laughs> oh, very kind. <laughs> okay, but what's on your playlist right now? What, do you, what are you listening to? Like music-wise, you mean? Yeah, yeah. We, or just we, generally. If, if we were to construe playlist as music, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, I was, you know, I'm doing the podcasting thing lately. Okay, like I, I like, um, I like some vocal music from faraway places. So let's see the, yeah, oh. the Bulgarian London Choir. They're pretty rad. Um, and then I was checking out some releases from my home, my home state, and my hometown of Minneapolis. Lady yeah. Midnight, yeah, Lady Midnight. Um, cool. Put out some rad stuff, and the artist Mayada on Instagram does some really cool um, she, piano performances where she takes requests, so I, I try to catch those too. Very cool. Well, we are Minneapolis-based, so we are definite uh, hometown people yes. here. So, And, and we always, so, so part of uh, Behavioral Grooves is we, Tim and I misunderstood, uh, we both agreed on the name right away, but we both misunderstood. We had different uh, things on it. I thought it was about the behavioral grooves in the mind and kind of the <laughs> grooves that we form. And Tim was thinking it's behavior and music combined. So, um, so we ask questions like this to, to all of our guests. So do you listen to music when you work? Now, obviously, as a musician, that's part of it, but you do writing and, you're, and, mm. and other things around that. So do you listen to music when you work or is it too distracting for you? Um, I cannot listen to music with words when I work, but, mm. um, but yeah, I sometimes do listen to the, the kind of curated 
playlists that are designed for people who are working or studying. So like, um, like a simple piano, you know, mm-hmm. I, I enjoy, but if the, yeah, if the music has words, my brain can't, can't, uh, can't write very well, you know, it's distracted by the language, <laughs> you know? Um, and then also like, I think if there's really big dynamic, you know, emotional swells, um, I also lean into it a little bit too hard, you know, at the expense <laughs> of my productivity. So yeah. Well, t- talk a little. If you could talk a little bit more about that, because th- I think this is a particularly interesting thing to talk to you about, is because you sort of know the nuances of music, right? You, so when you say that you could listen to sort of simple piano music, mm. could could you just expand on that a little bit? Like, how simple like does it need to be? Is it like smooth jazz kind of stuff, or mm. you know? Yeah, like um, yeah, sure. So maybe like an Eric Satie or a Yen Terson. Um, so you're talking about maybe like one person at the piano as yeah. opposed and, and, and there's maybe sort of like a, a monodynamic to it. So it's yeah. not these huge, like really fast, hyper percussive, like, duh, 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 like anything that's really aggro, um, and has a lot of, I think like, um, yeah, ag- aggressive percussive elements. I'd, <laughs> I'd. Yeah, you're not going to listen yeah, to Chopin's. My, 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 I'm distracted. Yeah, you're not going to do Chopin's mazurkas while you know solo piano <laughs> while you're while you're working. That's just not going to work. You know, you know, it's funny. I'm not a fan of Chopin, but that word mazurka is so cool. I have tried to incorporate that into <laughs> writing or a rap song for so long. Just I think it's so rad. Well, I just have to say, anybody that can write a song about a Chacon, uh, yeah, uh, an entire yeah. song, uh, <laughs> you you can you can do this. You can do this. So. Thank you, <laughs> Dessa. I, I know our time is short here, so thank you very much. This has been super, super fun. Um, Tim and I are both big fans, and we're just super impressed with not only your music, but also just your curiosity, as you say, and your delving into this human condition. And uh, great luck to you with your podcast. It's fantastic. So all of our listeners go out and uh listen to that when it comes out actually it'll be out when we when we do this so make sure that uh, you listen yeah thanks Dessa thank you so much for having me thanks guys welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I are going to groove on what we learned from our discussion with Dessa have a free-flowing conversation and talk about whatever else comes into our fanboy brains well I yeah. My fanboy brain. You're, you're not quite the same level of fanboy as I am. That's because it's really hard to reach your level of fanboyism when it comes to Dessa. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So is it the Latin? It might be the devotium extremis or the devotius groupus that I might fall <laughs> under in, in that category. Yeah, I, I, I've been listening to Dessa for years. It has just been one of those things. And I just truly, truly appreciate her music the lyrics that she brings, the emotion, and then following just the other stuff that she does as well. So this was, I, I, I hope, I hope that that fanboy didn't necessarily come out in the interview. At least I was trying to keep fanboyism yeah. down a little bit. No. no, no, don't worry about it. You were, you, you, but you were being real. You were being you. That was the cool thing. And she yeah. got it. Well, that, that that was good. I mean, I I truly it was. We talked about this with within the podcast, right? This idea that 
one of the great things about being a podcast host is that you get to talk to all these really cool people about really cool things. And what could be more cooler for me than to talk with Dessa right. on this? I thought that was great. So. And you never would have been able to get 45 minutes with her one-on-one if it wasn't for the podcast. So gotta, <laughs> nope, gotta unless, say, thanks unless I'd been, yeah, unless I'd been sitting next to her on a plane, which I, I actually sat behind her on a plane on a trip over to Amsterdam on my way to uh, mm. uh, Kuwait to, to do a, a conference. And she was obviously flying over to Europe to do some concerts over there because Abby Wolf was with her. And I forget who else, but I was sitting about three or four rows behind her. See, that's the fanboyism. That's kind of scary, isn't it? No, no, it's not scary at all. <laughs> what would have been scary is if you would have said, do you remember me on that plane to Amsterdam? I was like four rows behind you. That would have been scary. But, <laughs> but again, I was, I was at that point, I was too scared to even go up to her, you know, after the fact and just say, hi, Dessa, oh. I'm Kurt. I'm, I'm a big fan, blah, blah, blah. But no, I was... Hey, we can talk to her for 45 minutes on, on the show. It's, it's fantastic. I love it. And by the way, my fanboyism even grew a little bit just because I thought just because she dropped this gem and, and it was this thing that I think probably most people in the interview probably passed over. Maybe this is just me being, you know, super fanboy, right. And, and, and picking up on all these little things and just kind of going, Oh, I just, I love this even more, but she, had this comment called uh, that where she said preference against the wire monkey. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was in relationship to the conversation that we had about music being synchronism synchronist and, and pulling people in and the emotional side of it. And it was just this at the end of a, of a sentence that she brought this in. And if you didn't catch it and you didn't understand what she was talking about, you just go, wire monkey, what does that mean? Oh, that's just some weird, you know, lyrical wording. It refers back to Harry Harlow, who yeah. was a social psychologist back in the 50s and 60s. And he put these baby monkeys in into cages without their mothers. And they had a cloth monkey that didn't give any substance versus a wire, kind of wire, cold, caged monkey that did give sustenance. And what he found is that for the vast majority of the time, those monkeys would uh, be on the cloth because they liked that comfort. They felt there was that need. And it got into a whole component around attachment theory and various different things. And you can say what you want to say about the ethics of, of what he did with, with those monkeys, which isn't very good. But just the reference that was just dropped as kind of a sidebar in here, yeah, you know, Bigger fanboy today than I was yesterday. That's all I have to say. Deservingly <laughs> so. Deservingly so. Because she's uh, she's a remarkable woman and it was really, really fun to talk with her. Uh, but let's make sure that we talk about her curiosity and her the role that science plays in her life. Because she, she said that science is a daily practice. How about that? Yeah, I loved it when she's talking about the flower, the the yellow, I forget, what was it? Yellow roses on her table, whatever it was. And look, they're dying. So now next time she gets, you know, flowers, she's going to use a bigger vase. And it's this constant exploration of things in our lives. And if we think about it, that's what we do. We, we grow, we move beyond by exploring and doing little scientific experiments. 
And I thought that that was just a fascinating way of thinking about things. It is a great, well, she's fantastic with metaphor, right? When she said learning shouldn't be vegetables, like <laughs> why should learning be such a bad thing? And I think that educators have been working on this for a long time. This isn't a new concept, uh, but it's also really challenging. And we still call out today educators that do a great job of making the learning experience more like eating ice cream than like eating vegetables. Uh, well, you know, she is a ice, she is an ice cream, uh, you know, inventor. So, <laughs> you know, we should make that, that, but so think about that, right? So think about when we talked about this in the, in the show is, is taking learning out of the margins and bringing it into our every day world. Hey, if I could live off of ice cream every day, you know, I would go off of ice cream. Every day. <laughs> I know you would. <laughs> I would too. <laughs> so, I mean, it, that, that I thought was fascinating. And I think where I see a element of this is that a lot of podcasts are able to make some of this learning. Hopefully we're doing this making some of that learning that would normally feel like eating, being forced to eat your vegetables into this concept of, nope, this is ice cream. This is a dessert. If we can add some entertainment into this, if we can bring knowledge in a way that is palatable to our, our uh, taste, then we're getting people more engaged in this. And I think that's what she's trying to do with her podcast as well. And again, from the first episode that we listened to, I think she's done a fantastic job with it. Edutainment is an important way of reaching something that we already want, right? Uh, Pew Research has indicated that 80%, 80% of personal learners say that they pursued knowledge in an area of personal interest because they wanted to learn something that would help make their life more interesting and fulfilling. So we already want it. We already have the desire for it. But in some ways, the edutainment approach reduces friction and helps helps more people get into it and to get deeper into the learning side that satisfies us on a very deeply intrinsic level. Well, going to that same Pew research back from 2016 on learning, one of the other interesting pieces from that that I took out of it was that 69%, almost 70% of people said that learning opened up new perspectives about their lives, which goes again to this aspect that learning should be integrated into our lives, not on the weekends, not in the margins, because it's opening up these new perspectives about our lives. It's, it's helping us live a more fulfilling life. And so how do you, how do you tap into that curiosity? How do you is there a way that we can, beyond just maybe taking learning and putting it into edutainment piece, are there things that we can do as individuals that can increase our curiosity and that can integrate learning into just things we do every day? Yeah. Well, doesn't that kind of indicate that that even in this turbulent and highly divided world that we live in today, that we still have this desire to learn and create new perspectives in our lives. So that it, but I think the openness is lacking right now. 
that then in the particular phase in the world that we're going through right now, people don't want to be open because it's so so tribal and so so carefully guarded. Um, and we're kind of missing out on this part of us that really wants to learn new perspectives, wants to bring uh, fulfillment and uh, interest to our lives in in deeper ways. We're kind of cutting ourselves off, uh, sort of shooting ourselves in the foot, if you will. Yeah, I love that idea of openness and that it's kind of closed off. It goes back to maybe just a mindset shift. Yeah. That idea yeah. that we do have to practice science on a daily basis, that this idea that it is something that we need to search for, this this concept of, hey, these flowers are dying in this vase, so next time I need to try something new in order to learn, or this openness of I'm getting all of my news from X source, so maybe I need to open up and explore an alternative source for that news that will allow me to get a different perspective and maybe learn something new. Or maybe it's just like, what's curious for me today? And let me make sure that I put some time into my day, into my calendar to go Google that and to go, you know, it's, maybe it's not dinosaurs like it was when I was five, six years old. Um, but now <laughs> no. it's, it's behavioral science stuff or whatever. And I just on a total aside, sorry, going down the, going down this ramp. One of the best, one of the best far side cartoons I ever saw was this two panel, um, thing that said, uh, maybe it wasn't two panel, but it was, uh, it was a, a chart and it said age and dinosaur knowledge. And it, and it like started really low. And then about age five, six, seven, it peaked, and then it went down and down as you got older. But I just thought that was that was funny, and it reminded me of fan, that. I think it's fantastic because why shouldn't it just continue to grow and grow and grow? Right? We could continue yeah. to to add to it, but unless you're Ross on Friends, you know. But there you go. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, All right, we 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 we've just beat that to death i'm sure <laughs> oh my god so and so all right i could go on and on and on about this whole conversation because i'm obviously reading way too much into it because of my fanism here but another piece that she talked about that i thought was fantastic was this uh, this lack of our ability to compare subjective experiences mm, right yeah. we, we can't rigorously compare subjective experiences quote unquote is what she said and that's a philosophical topic. This idea of is the red that you see the same red that I see? And if I look through your eyes, would I call that blue? Because that's the what blue looks like to me. But because we all see and talk about things the way that I describe red and the way that you describe red have then taken on different meanings inside of our brain. And all of these subjective experiences are like that. And I thought that was just a, again, could rip on that for, for hours. And Well, know. yeah, but at the same time, this is one of the reasons that we benefit from science is to have this large number of subjective experiences can be measured, can be identified, at least maybe not measured, but collectively we can measure them. You know, we, we don't, it's not like... Um, 
it's not like we know the exact impact of a particular song on one person, any one person individually. But neuroscience has demonstrated that that a song makes an imprint on your brain that touches mm-hmm. many parts of the brain, right? So that and that every time we hear that song, that imprint gets called back. That that basically that that sort of landmass of of information from all different parts of our brain comes back. And so over many, many people, over many, many subjects, over large studies, we do know that music is a very powerful emotional tool because of uh, of measuring lots of individual subjective experiences. Um, uh, Pablo Ropoles and Ernest Masherero's recent study, you know, they, they demonstrated that across a large cross-section of people during the pandemic, music was more healing than exercise, yoga, or sex. That, well, you know, that, so not every single individual, not 100% of the population, but a large preponderance of people believed that music was more healing than lots and lots of other activities. So we do, I think we can collect these individual subjective experiences and potentially make objective observations over them. Well, another piece of this, and it goes back to, or I'll take it back to, you know, me discovering that I have aphantasia, which again, we briefly talked about in here. And that was a conversation that, I had with you and it was this whole piece about you remembering where your car was. And I said, what do you mean? That's not how I would be able to do that. And you're going, no, I can see the car and I see where it's parked and this. And I'm going, no, it's just the general image. Right. And you're like, no, it's like, this is it. And those conversations that we have with others that explore some of those subjective elements of our lives, I think can lead to greater understanding of ourselves, but also of our interactions with other. So for instance, because of that, I now understand that, hey, when people talk about seeing things in their brain, they're seeing those differently than how I do. Yes. And, yep. and that allows me to have a better understanding of people. And I think this is what you're talking about a little bit with the science, but I think it can also happen in our own personal lives by just having that curiosity, going back to curiosity, that curiosity about what do you see in this? What do you feel in these situations? What does this, what, what emotion does this song evoke for you? Those are all conversations that we can have with others that allow us to get a better, for lack of a, of, a, of a better word, a better picture in our mind of who that person is. Now, mm-hmm. I can't necessarily do that good picture, but that's a side of, of how this goes. Anyway. <laughs> and, and that's another lovely rabbit hole to go down. <laughs> <laughs> we always go down these rabbit holes. What are you talking about? All right. What what else do you want to talk about, Tim? What what else did what did Dessa do for I could because I could go on and on and on. So what what did what were some of the conversation pieces that you want to groove on? Well, uh, as as you might imagine, I loved it when she was talking about the importance of music, her music creating a strong emotional response, right? Mm. She 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 was careful to not be prescriptive. But um, I think she talked about herself as an attention shepherd, 
mm-hmm. when she's on stage. And so, so to some degree, the music needs to engage people, right? She really loves this idea of, of her songs engaging people. And she talked about true songs versus, well, she didn't actually label the, the, the songs that weren't sort of true, but there's, there's narrative and, and fiction in some songs because we're, songwriters are blending a lot of things or they're writing because they're just drawn to a particular story. And I just thought it was fantastic to hear a, a songwriter with so much success speak so uh, deliberately and candidly about the, the way she thinks about writing, the way she processes it. Um, so, so you're a songwriter. You have written hundreds, if not thousands of songs in your life. Do you approach it? How do you approach it? Very much the same way. I mean, I, I'm not going to write a song that doesn't have any powerful emotion to me. That's the first measure. If there isn't some strong story to tell that's meaningful to me, what is the point? Right. So it has to be my own, my own uh, minimum level of, yeah, that's actually exciting. I'd like to listen to that. And then she asked us this, and you may not have picked up on this, but she talked about uh, when she uses it, when she, if she's going to use a pronoun, who yep. does that pronoun refer to? And this is an incredibly powerful thing in a, in a, uh, in writing a song is to think about who is the, t- who is the person telling the story and who are they telling the story about? So sometimes the songs, the singer is the storyteller, but sometimes the storyteller is not the singer. The singer is actually a third person removed from from mm-hmm. the, the storyteller, and then you have to be careful about who he and she might be, who the, where, where those pronouns actually apply, and simple grammatical things that obviously she's incredibly aware of and sensitive to are a lot are oftentimes uh, overrun and not paid attention to by less successful songwriters. So, so, so she, she gets I, it right. I, I think so. Uh, you know, and, and yeah. I, I know you do too, to a certain degree, but I, there's a piece that she, she said, and I'm going to quote, she goes, uh, and again, it was talking about the writing process. And she says to paint the picture, to come up with some really memorable and unique, unique metaphors. That was what she's talking about her job. And I just want to go and, and, and just say that is one of the things that I love about Dessa is the metaphors and the philosophical metaphors that she brings in, or the they're not necessarily metaphors, but the references to to old yeah. philosophers. So, for instance, in her song "Fighting Fish," right. So, first off, within that song, she talks about an ink test, right? So, she brings in this idea of an ink test, and again, she just drops the ink test part in there without going in deeper or anything like that. But all right, the psychological references in there. Then she talks about Greek, the Greek philosopher Zeno. And she talks oh, about Zeno's right. arrow and how, and so again, if you don't know who Zeno is, it, it, it sounds cool, you know, Zeno's arrow. All right, that's just a cool thing. But if you actually know, or you then get interested and curious and you go and research it, like I did, you find out that Zeno was the Stoic philosopher who talked about all these various different things and that this idea of an arrow was one of his famous mind experiments of, of how arrow is at any one moment stationary and yet moving. And so how does it move if it's stationary? It, it, again, just fascinating things. And she does that with, with others. I mean, another one that I know that she talks about is Euclid. 
right? So Euclid's geometry. And, mm -hmm. you know, in one of her songs, she said, Euclid's made to be the fool because it's these shapes are changing. And Euclid said that they can't, you can't, you can't curve shapes. And, and again, it was all, it's like these deep, like philosophical components that are brought into the music that have a double meaning if you understand some of them beyond just some musical pieces, which I think is fascinating. And I, I, I love it when I hear musicians that do those types of things, not necessarily the philosophical, bringing in a, a philosopher, different pieces of that, but just that idea that you have to think about the lyrics and yet they convey a message that maybe goes beyond the surface level of it. So it's, I, I agree wholeheartedly, Kurt, that that's a really important thing for people who listen to lyrics, right? There's some people who pay very little attention to lyrics, but for those who do. What? What? Yeah. No, see, this is one of those subjective things. Everybody pays attention to lyrics, right? I wish, believe you me, I wish that everybody paid attention to lyrics, but, but they just don't. Uh, but even, even, Titling the song Fighting Fish is an interesting connection of two words, right? It gets us, it gets us intrigued a little bit. I, I wrote a song called I Get Lonesome Too, and not, not like the number two, but, but uh, also. also, also, yeah. And, uh, and I thought, cause I, that line is, I get lonesome is, is one thing, right? That's very standard. That's very normal. And that, that doesn't tell much of a story other than about me. But as soon as I add the word to T O O, I get lonesome too. Now I bring someone else into the conversation and, and it expands the size of the story from just being about me to someone else who is apparently also feeling lonely. Mm. And, and so like just something as simple as, one more word or just the right word. And this is, this is economic writing at its best, right? When, when the songwriter can boil a big part, a big story down to just a couple of words, like she does with talking about Euclid playing the fool uh, or Zeno's arrow, the references are huge, but the number of words is very economic and small and tells a cool story. Uh, I love that about what she does. I think it's, it's just fantastic. <laughs> so I wanted to go, off of that, because the, the other thing that she mentioned was this this idea of dropping the veil, right? So in writing to drop the veil, it really it's that veil of that practice mirror face that she talked about, which again, I just love this I concept because as soon as she said it, I go, yep, you know it, right? You're looking in the in the in the mirror and you go, Oh, yep, I have to put my chin up. I need to, you know, make sure my eyes, my eyebrow isn't doing a weird thing or whatever that would be. And her conversation, like the, the voicemail message that I'm, I'm leaving and you sound different in your voicemail <laughs> message and those, yes. all of those practiced components that are showing a part of us and we're projecting out this persona that we want to project out. And sometimes you drop those veils of the projection part of it. And when you do that, it leads to a deeper truth and a deeper understanding of the real you. And I think that it can be scary. And I think that it can also be a little self-indulgent sometimes. But if you do it well, then it leads to this really deep understanding. And again, it gets to maybe some of that subjective truth that I have as a, as a individual 
and I can understand your subjective truth a little bit better because of the writing that you've done. Well, and these these veils uh, or the the mirror faces that we have are stacked on our self schema and self identities, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. That that they are the kinds of things that when we reveal them, we really are revealing something that's core about ourselves and. We, we have a natural tendency to be a little protective of that, but at the same time, it's so rewarding to, to be open, to drop the veil, to actually just share who we, who we are, uh, can be rewarded in lots and lots of wonderful ways. It's, uh, it, it reminds me a little bit of something that I just lost. Um, <laughs> just, <laughs> I can't. See, but this is this is the real you, not the polished you. So you better not edit this out because this is the the real part. And we can, you know, that's the thing about the world that we project out is this world that we want, how we want people to think about us. And, and yet that's not how we actually are. And I think there's an emotional connection that people get when they see beyond that veil. Be, when they see beyond the right. practice right. mirror face. And to that point, I think it's really, really true. Yeah, the pratfall effect comes comes to mind as something that uh, Francesca Gino did a great job of demonstrating. And, uh, and when we see it in other people, we are more endeared to them. It's, it's a good thing. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, we better wrap this up. And uh, again, I thought it was a fantastic episode, but that's my fanboyism. And... Uh, We'll come back to that. Yeah, stay tuned for a bonus track. Kurt's gonna gonna get through a bonus track here in just a second. This is Kurt with our bonus track and groove idea for the week. I think it was obvious, at least in the grooving session, that I'm a pretty big fan of Dessa's and that this episode was special for me. I prepped harder for this session than probably any session that we've done, maybe with the exception of Gary Latham. I hope that that came through in a positive way. And I hope our conversation provided you, our listeners, with some insights and fun. So we started the episode by talking about Dessa's new podcast, Deeply Humid, where she takes a deep personal look at what lies behind our thoughts and behaviors. We encourage you to go out and give it a listen, even if she did steal our tagline. The conversation about her podcast led us to how important curiosity is in our lives, that learning is something that shouldn't be relegated to the margins of our lives, but it should be front and center. That if we are curious, learning goes from being the vegetables on our plate that we are forced to eat to the ice cream dessert that we can't get enough of. We touched upon the fact that we can't compare subjective experiences, that we will never know if you're read is the same as my red, but that science can sometimes help us understand the subjective collective. We talked about how emotions are central to music. Maybe that it is even built into our being through evolution and that music allows us to synchronize with others. It makes us feel connections, which may just be an inherent response to our preference against the wire monkey. It gives us comfort. It can provide solace when needed. Music is also a narrative, one that can lead to shared understanding, where the emotion that is being sung about can relate to the emotion that the listener feels, 
providing a connection and sense of bonding that helps us both survive, possibly even thrive in this world. Dessa shared her experience in self-experimenting on her brain and using neuroscience to rid herself of her lovesickness. While it was only an N of one, it was a pretty interesting exploration into how our brains process love and how they work. Okay, so now for the groove idea for this week. Listen closely to a song that emotionally moved you. Do you feel the emotion from the music, from the lyrics, from a combination of those two things, or is it something else? Let us know what you find out. Leave us a note on social media with your answer. With that, Groovers, it's time to end our episode with Dessa. We hope that this week you are inspired to go out and find your groove.